our sins to Him. Comfort now as we come to worship our God. Let's turn now to God's Word to be taught by Him. Our scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Kings chapter 20. First Kings 20, it's a bit of a long text, but we'll read that entire chapter. Beginning then in verse 1, Ben-Hadad the king of Syria gathered all his army together. Thirty-two kings were with him, and horses and chariots, and he went up and closed in on Samaria and fought against it. And he sent messengers into the city to Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, Your silver and your gold are mine, your best wives and children also are mine. And the king of Israel answered, As you say, my lord, O king, I am yours and all that I have. The messengers came again and said, Thus says Ben-Hadad, I sent to you, saying, Deliver to me your silver and your gold, your wives and your children. Nevertheless, I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they, sh- they shall search your house and the houses of your servants and lay hands on whatever pleases you and take it away. Then the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, Mark now and see how this man is seeking trouble. For he sent to me for my wives and my children and for my silver and my gold, and I did not refuse him. And all the elders and all the people said to him, Do not listen or consent. So he, sent, so he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, Tell my lord the king, All that you first demanded of your servant I will do, but this thing I cannot do. And the messengers departed and brought him word again. Then Hadad sent to him and said, The gods do so to me, and more also, if the dust of Samaria shall suffice for handfuls for all the people who follow me. And the king of Israel answered, Tell him, Let not him who straps on his armor boast himself as he who takes it off. When Ben-Hadad heard this message as he was drinking with the kings in the booths, he said to his men, Take your positions. And they took their positions against the city. And behold, a prophet came near to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And Ahab said, By whom? He said, Thus says the Lord, by the servants of the governors of the districts. Then he answered, Who shall begin the battle? He answered, You. Then he mustered the servants of the governors of the districts, and they were two hundred and thirty-two. And after them he mustered all the people of Israel, seven thousand. And they went out at noon, while Ben-Hadad was drinking himself drunk in the booths, he and the thirty-two kings who helped him. The servants of the governors of the districts went out first. And Ben-Hadad sent out scouts, and they reported to him, Men are coming out from Samaria. He said, If they have come out for peace, take them alive. Or if they have come out for war, take them alive. So these went out of the city, the servants of the governors of the districts, and the army that followed them. And each struck down his man. The the Syrians fled, and Israel pursued them. But Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, escaped on a horse with horsemen. And the king of Israel went out and struck the horses and chariots and struck the Syrians with a great blow. Then the prophet came near to the king of Israel and said to him, Come, strengthen yourself and consider well what you have to do, for in the spring the king of Syria will come up against you. And the servants of the king of Syria said to him, Their gods are gods of the hills, and so they were stronger than we. But let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. And do this, remove the kings each from his post, and put commanders in their places, and muster an army like the army that you have lost, horse for horse, and chariot for chariot. Then we will fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. And he listened to their voice and did so. In the spring, Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. 
And the people of Israel were mustered and were provisioned and went against them. The people of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats, but the Syrians filled the country. And a man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, Thus says the Lord, Because the Syrians have said, The the Lord is a God of the hills, but He is not a God of the valleys. Therefore I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And they encamped opposite one another seven days. Then on the seventh day the battle was joined, and the people of Israel struck down the Syrians, a hundred thousand foot soldiers in one day, and the rest fled into the city of Aphek, and the wall fell upon twenty-seven thousand men who were left. Ben-Hadad also fled and entered an inner chamber in the city. And his servants said to him, Behold, now we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Let us put sackcloth around our waists and ropes on our heads and go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will spare your life. So they tied sackcloth around their waists and put ropes on their heads and went to the king of Israel and said, Your servant Ben-Hadad says, Please let me live. And he said, Does he still live? He is my brother. Now the men were watching for a sign and they quickly took it up from him and said, Yes, your brother Ben-Hadad. Then he said, Go and bring him. Then Ben-Hadad came out to him, and he caused him to come up into the chariot. And Ben-Hadad said to him, The cities that my father took from your father I will restore, and you may establish bazaars for yourself in Damascus, as my father did in Samaria. And Ahab said, I will let you go on these terms. So he made a covenant with him and let him go. And a certain man of the sons of the prophets said to his fellow at the command of the Lord, Strike me, please. But the man refused to strike him. Then he said to him, Because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, behold, as soon as you have gone from me, a lion shall strike you down. And as soon as he had departed from him, a lion met him and struck him down. Then he found another man and said, Strike me, please. And the man struck him, struck him, and wounded him. So the prophet departed and waited for the king by the way, disguising himself with a bandage over his eyes. And as the king passed, he cried to the king and said, Your servant went out into the midst of battle, and behold, a soldier turned and brought a man to me and said, Guard this man, if by any means he is missing, your life shall be for his life, or else you shall pay a talent of silver. And as your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. The king of Israel said to him, So shall your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. Then he hurried to take the bandage away from his eyes, and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. And he said to him, Thus says the Lord, Because you have let go out of your hand the man whom I had devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall be for his life, and your people for his people. And the king of Israel went to his house, vexed and sullen, and came to Samaria. So far, the word of God. As we reflect on what we've read, let's sing together from Psalm 101. This morning, our text will be the entire chapter that we've read, 1 Kings chapter 20. Brothers and sisters, in our Lord Jesus Christ, This chapter is another one of those chapters, I've I've mentioned a couple of them before, where I sat down on Monday morning with with the week in front of me and read the chapter and, and began to wonder, now what am I supposed to do with a chapter like this? You have those chapters in the Old Testament where you're left wondering, why was all this recorded for us and why were some of these details recorded and passed down to us? And What are we supposed to do with a chapter like this now? Well, once you start digging in and and carefully reading through it and and thoughtfully thinking about the the implications, then then those those questions do start to be replaced by a a greater awareness of the meaning of the text and also the, the relevance of the text for our day. It's one of the privileges I have as pastor is I get to take my time and and do that and, and watch the process unfold. 
And, and then I get to share that and, and proclaim that also to you. And this chapter, though it, it leaves you initially with many questions, it does have important and, and very relevant lessons for the church today. And, and those lessons come out especially towards the end of the chapter. There's basically two main sections in the chapter, two, two main battles around which the chapter is organized, and then there's a, a surprising twist at the very end, and that's where the lesson is ultimately driven home. Verse 1 gives us the historical background that, that we need to know. It says, Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his army together. Thirty-two kings were with him, and horses and chariots. And he went up and closed in on Samaria and fought against it. Now let me just say a note about this, this man, Ben-Hadad. We do know of a Ben-Hadad from chapter 13, or 15, excuse me, that was also king of Syria, but scholars do not think that this was the same king. There were, there were just too many intervening years. And so we're assuming this is going to be his son, uh, Ben-Hadad, the second king of, of Syria. Now, now the text here talks about a siege also, but we shouldn't think here of a siege immediately around the city, which is usually what you think of when you hear the word siege. But he was besieging Samaria, the entire region of Samaria. And, and you can see that because Ahab is still free to move around in and out of the city. He sends messengers to all the elders of Israel, and, and even the king of Syria has to send scouts to, to the city to see what's going on. So, so they're obviously a long ways off. So from that position then, Ben-Hadad has a message for King Ahab, and you see it there in verse 3. He says, thus says Ben-Hadad, and you notice the, there's, a, there's a, 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 a game of words happening in this chapter where he says, thus says Ben-Hadad, and a few verses later, thus says the Lord, and then again, well, thus says Ben-Hadad, and there's this, this back and forth. So he says, thus says Ben-Hadad, your silver and your gold are mine, your best wives and children also are mine. And the king of Israel answered, As you say, my lord, O king, I am yours and all that I have. And you see, Ahab recognized here that Ben-Hadad did have the upper hand. He had gathered 32 kings. They would have been local chieftains of, of different cities or tribes. And, and with 32 kings, Ahab didn't stand a chance against Ben-Hadad. It was a massive coalition by the standards, standards of that day. So, so far, Ben-Hadad was really only asking for submission in principle. Your, your wives and your children are mine, your gold and silver are mine, and usually you can say, okay, fine, they're yours, and the, the, the battle's over. And so Ahab is happy to grant that, yes, he is Ben-Hadad's servant, and everything that he had, even his wife and children, technically can belong to Ben-Hadad. As long as it's just in principle, then really it's just a game of words. And if that's what it takes to prevent the city from being destroyed, that's a small price to pay. The only problem was Ben-Hadad wasn't happy with submission in principle. And you see that in, in verse 5. The messengers came again and said, Thus says Ben-Hadad, I sent to you saying, Deliver to me, now you notice the change of, of words there, Deliver to me your silver and your gold, your wives and children. Nevertheless, I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they will search your house and the houses of your servants and lay their hands on whatever pleases you to take it away. Now you notice in, in this command from Ben-Hadad what a sick man he, he really was. He already had control over the entire country, at least in principle, but certainly Israel was no longer a threat to him. But he wanted to go the extra step to come in and humiliate Ben-Hadad by taking away everything that mattered to him, including his own wives and children. He was just being perverse to, to Ahab. He was enjoying this, this new position of power with 32 kings standing behind him, and he knew he could get away with whatever he wanted to. And so he thought he was going to enjoy that at Ahab's expense. And you can see that's where Ahab ultimately draws the line. He, he sent messengers to all the elders of Israel to tell them what Ben-Hadad was asking for, and they all agreed he ought not to give in to Ben-Hadad's demand. So Ahab sent these messengers back to Ben-Hadad saying he could not do and would not do what he had asked. 
Well, when Ben-Hadad got that response, he was furious. And you see that in the text. He sent messengers back saying, The gods do so to me, and more also, if the dust of Samaria shall suffice for handfuls for all the people who follow me. In other words, after we pulverize your city, I'm going to split up the dust and, and, and leave that as the spoils. And even that won't be more than a handful for all the different people uh, that follow me. Now, you have to love Ahab's response in verse 11. I think I noticed a couple of you chuckling as, as we were reading that. The king of Israel answered, Tell him, let not him who straps on his armor boast like the man who's taking it off. It's a good one-liner for your next hockey game. Uh, but, but to be fair, for Ahab, this would have taken a great deal of courage because he knew that the odds were really not in his favor. It was a bold one-liner, but he knew that there was going to be consequences. So Ben-Hadad ordered all his men to take positions against the city. And then at that moment, we see God breaks into the story for the first time in the chapter. In a time when Ahab and all of Israel would have been trembling at the thought of what was about to happen, suddenly you see God break in with His grace. Verse 13, a prophet came to Ahab and said, Do you see this great multitude. Behold, I will give it into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And we need to notice those, those last words. You shall know that I am the Lord. Why does God ultimately act to save His people? Is it primarily, ultimately, because He loves them and cares for them? He certainly does. But it isn't ultimately that. Not in the first place. Why does God act to save His people? God acts for His own glory and honor. For His own name's sake. He, he rose up in this moment to save Israel from what certainly would have been certain doom. So that they would know that He is the Lord. To show them His power. To show them that the victory is ultimately His, so that they would give Him the glory that He is due. So He says, I will give it into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Now you almost wonder how Ahab is going to react to the words of that prophet. We know that Ahab up till now didn't have much use for prophets, at least not during the rest of his reign. And so you wonder whether he's just going to send this prophet packing but amazingly, you notice in this time of crisis, Ahab took God up on his offer. It's a reminder that people really are complex. We are walking mysteries. You, you get some people that, that walk with the Lord their entire lives, and then, and then when you never would have expected it, they suddenly fall into sin in ways that you never would have imagined. And then on the other side of the spectrum, you get people like Ahab who, who never listen to God, who never submit to God, who are always opposing God and yet occasionally show uh, signs of, of, of faith even and moments of obedience and repentance. We are walking mysteries and, and contradictions. We can love God with our, heart, with our whole heart or, or at least from the heart, and yet still have areas in our life which God has been pushing against for years and we're still pushing back against Him. Things that need to change and yet after years still haven't. And others can walk away from God entirely and yet surprisingly when you don't expect it, admit some hesitations and even show some remnants of faith. It's at the very least a reminder that on this side of eternity it's never too late to keep praying and to keep striving for repentance from those who have walked away. And that's what we see here with King Ahab. This prophet comes to him with an incredible promise. And we're so used to Ahab being such a, a, an ungodly and such a worldly man with, with no serious regard for, for God's prophets that we expect him to just send the prophet away because he had bigger things to worry about. But surprisingly, he takes God at his word. Maybe it was just his desperate situation that he really saw that now he was really in trouble and there was no other way but to follow God. But whatever was going on in his mind or in his heart, you see he listens to this prophet and he asks him, by whom are we going to beat this army? 
And I don't think he means that question sarcastically because he actually does what the prophet orders him to do. So he asks, by whom will this army be given into my hand? And the prophet tells him, by the servants of the governors of the districts. Now it's not clear there whether he's referring to to literal servants or or to the young officers. That, That word can go both ways. But either way, he's talking about young, relatively inexperienced men. Either servants who weren't trained for battle or otherwise young rookies who had just started their military careers. And those are the ones, he says, who are going to achieve victory for you. And the point of that is is obviously so clear. You see God doing this over and over in the Old Testament, that, that there would be no doubt at all, if these people win, it's clear that the victory was ultimately God's. You might remember how God commanded the judge, Gideon, to send away all the the strongest of the men and and the vast majority of the men that he had and to fight a battle with only 300 men against a much larger army. And God did that to show that the victory was ultimately his. And that's what we're seeing here as well. There's been times in, in history when God has achieved victory deliberately through the weakest and, and, and the, the smallest contingent possible. God's power is shown over and over again in weakness. And so then we read that Ahab asked, who shall begin the battle? And actually in the Hebrew, he uses an expression that's literally to tie up the battle. So a lot of commentators would say he's asking, who shall finish the battle, and I think that's actually the more likely translation, because that's ultimately what Ahab does. He sends these young men, and then he follows with the rest of the army behind them. But you notice still what God is asking Ahab, send in those young, inexperienced men, and then you are going to come in after them and finish the battle to tie it up. So God is still calling him to act in faith. They will begin the battle, but you're going to march in right after them and finish it up. Ahab would need to put his own life on the line in faith that God would ultimately act. And amazingly, Ahab did exactly that. It's so out of character for Ahab that we don't expect him to do something like that. But he does. He responds in faith. So he sends the army out first. First the youngest men and then 7,000 Israelites in total after them. Well, meanwhile, back in the Syrian camp, we find Ben-Hadad drinking himself drunk in his tent along with the other 32 kings. So he was just enjoying himself, enjoying this whole process, so confident that nothing could ever defeat his army. And you can see that he didn't even have a, a very clear mission here. This is not what men on a mission do, sitting in their tents, drinking themselves drunk. This is not the sort of behavior you get from a king who has a serious campaign to wage. So we find him wasted drunk when his scouts show up at his tent and tell him that the Israelite army is coming. And what you discover in all of that is God ultimately used Ben-Hadad's drunkenness to accomplish the victory. The order that he gives his men in 18 is an order that really could only come from a drunk man. He says, if they have come for for peace, which obviously they didn't, 7,000 soldiers coming at him. If they have come for peace, then take them alive. And if they have come for war, he says, go ahead and take them alive as well. Which is an incredibly stupid order, because how do you take 7,000 determined soldiers alive? But that's apparently the order that gets passed down the ranks. And so it's not surprising that even against a much larger army, the Israelites ultimately defeated them and devastated that army because the the, the poor Syrian army was stuck with that foolish command to, to try and take everyone alive. So it says they struck the Syrian army with a great blow, and the Syrian coalition fled before Israel. And the text doesn't ultimately say it, but you hope Israel recognized it. The victory here was very clearly of God. So that's the first part of the chapter. And the point there is God demonstrates the victory is ultimately His. In verse 22, you you get to see God's grace a second time 
to King Ahab. The, the same prophet came and, and, and warned Ahab to get ready for spring because the Syrian king would certainly come and attack again. Well, meanwhile, back in Syria, in, in the palace there, a different conversation was happening. His, his men came to him, the, the men of Ben-Hadad, and they say in verse 23, the God, their gods are the gods of the hills, and so they were stronger than we. But now let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. Now there's a strategic element behind that kind of advice, because the Syrians had horses and chariots, and the Israelites didn't. And so the Syrians were in a huge disadvantage in, in the rocky hills where the first battle took place, and probably every horseman and every charioteer was frustrated at, at how badly the battle went because they can't operate on, on the hills. And so we see here that the servants of Ben-Hadad aren't just being theologically driven. They're also, they're, they're also being practical and they're giving a theological backing, as it were, to, to their practical argument. But that theological argument is ultimately what loses them the battle because it's an insult to God. And so we see that that brings God to act a second time in this chapter. Now, before we, before we laugh at these, these Syrian advisors and, and think how silly they are for, for assuming that, that, different, that you know, God is the God of the mountains and, and they have gods of, of the hills, we might look back in, on that and think that's, that's so silly and, and how could they think that. But, but don't forget that these... These words were ultimately written to warn God's covenant people, Israel, and ultimately also for us who are reading that now. And so this chapter is still a warning to us. We're not just meant to read it so that we can laugh at the Syrians. And the reality is that that we can and we often do think about God in much the same way that these Syrian people did. For example, Christians often speak of God's Word as only determining our theology. We're hesitant to let it speak to any matters of of actual history or or of science or or psychology or philosophy. We think, no, leave those things to the experts. God's Word speaks to, to our theology. In other words, He's the God of the theological hills, but not of the real life valleys. Maybe you've heard someone speak about Scripture in those ways. This is making a theological point. It's not actually making a, you know, a scientific or historical point. So the argument goes. Or even in, in biblical ethics, we, you sometimes hear people say that Scripture maybe teaches about God's intention for the roles of, of men and women, for example, in the home and, and perhaps even in the church, but certainly not anywhere else, not in the workplace, not in society at large. Their biblical ethics shouldn't, shouldn't touch us. Or, or, or even biblical ethics were, were good for that time, but they're not good for, for our time. They're no longer relevant in the 21st century. He's the God of, of those days. He's not the God of, of the 21st century world today. Or religion is, is really just a, a personal, private matter, and it ought to be kept that way. We have no business letting our, our religious beliefs determine our, our government policies or the way that society works. No, he, he's the God of church not the God of, of Parliament Hill or anywhere else. Well, these, these ways of thinking are, are very common, and they're profoundly wrong. Not only do they rob God of His glory, but they also rob us of our faith, our ability to carry out what God requires of us with, with conviction, to be effective in our service here on earth. It's like the Dutch Prime Minister uh, Abraham Kuyper once said, there's not a square inch on earth over which Christ does not proclaim, this is mine. It all belongs to him. So the Syrians, the Syrian advisors were obviously wrong in, in their understanding of God, but these things weren't recorded so we could just laugh at them, but because we need the warning just as much ourselves. He's the God of all people in every place, and he governs over every affair of our lives. Obviously, God wasn't impressed with the Syrian theology. He had already shown in the first battle that His is the victory. Now He would show the Israelites and the Syrians that His is also the honor and the glory. He's jealous 
for his own honor. So when spring came and these two armies met once again for battle, and once again Israel was, was puny in comparison to the Syrian army. They were vastly outnumbered. It says that the people of Israel looked like two little flocks of goats against the Syrians who filled the land. But again, a man of God came to Ahab and told him, Thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said this, that the Lord is a God of the hills and not a God of the valleys, therefore I will give this multitude into your hand. And once again, you hear him finish it. He says, You shall know that I am the Lord. There's that line again. God is so jealous for his honor because he deserves that honor. We, we don't often feel offended when God is dishonored, or at least not to the degree that we should. But the reality is there is no greater injustice on earth than when people don't give God the honor that He deserves. It's disrespect and injustice in the highest degree. It's culpably inappropriate for people to not hold God in the esteem that God deserves. He created us. He rules over us. He gives us our every breath and our every heartbeat. And He owns the entire universe. He is unimaginably and profoundly wise and righteous and just and holy and good. And He deserves an eternity of praise from the bottom of our hearts from every single individual on earth. And He's rightly, justly jealous for His own honor. He wages war ultimately for His honor and He's right to do so. And so understand this then, brothers and sisters, when God acts to save you, as He has on the cross, He does not act primarily because He loves you, although He certainly does. But that's not what drives God at the deepest level. He ultimately acts for the honor of His own name. And understand this, He does so rightly. He ought to act for the honor of His own name. There's not a more worthy cause for God to devote Himself to than the honor of His own name. Your worth as a human being only comes because you are an image of God. It's His honor, His name, that is ultimately worthy and deserving of that glory. And so then for for those who, who believe... This should be immensely reassuring. God does not make you His God. But if He has chosen you for Himself, then when He acts for the honor of His name, it turns out also for your good. And that's exactly what we see here with the people of Israel. Once again, even though they were vastly outnumbered, they defeated the army of the Syrians. Now I want to pause here and just say something about the numbers that you, that you see in this passage. We do believe that the Bible is the inspired and inerrant Word of God. But that doesn't mean it, it, it's always necessarily been copied faithfully by, by the, over the centuries by the many different copiers who, who had to copy the Bible. And they did that, of course, by hand. Sometimes we have manuscript evidence of, of mistakes, and, and then it's very easy to correct. And sometimes you're left wondering if there are uh, mistakes somewhere along the way. And most scholars do think that there, there may have been with, with this text. There's a few different possibilities here. For one thing, the Hebrew word for, for a thousand happens to be the exact same word for a clan or a company of soldiers. And that's often, that often makes many texts in, in the Old Testament ambiguous. Are we talking about, say, 7,000 uh, soldiers or are we talking about 7,000 company or seven companies uh, of soldiers? And so sometimes when it says 3,000 soldiers or 7,000 soldiers, it may actually mean three companies uh, of soldiers. And to make matters even more complicated, that same word for for thousand and for for company is only a single small vowel different from the word for a commander of, of a company of soldiers. And so sometimes seven or, or 27 thousand might also mean 27 commanders or officers over the soldiers. 
Well, here our text says 100,000 soldiers were slain. Now, realistically, 100,000 casualties is not a, a number that's unheard of. There's been maybe about 20 battles in recorded history that, that did reach that number of casualties, although they were almost all in World War One and Two. But it does leave some questions here. Is the Hebrew using that number symbolically, or, or does it mean 100 companies of soldiers or even 100 officers over, over the soldiers? It, it's hard to say. And, and it gets especially difficult with the second number of 27,000. It says, the rest fled into a city, and, and the wall of that city fell upon the 27,000 men who were left. It's very difficult to imagine any kind of scenario where, where that might happen. Just to give you some perspective, when the Twin Towers fell in New York, which were obviously much bigger than any structure that existed in that time, still only 3,000 uh, were killed. So it's not that God couldn't kill 27,000 men by, by the fall of a city, but there's no city that's ever been built or no wall that's ever been built that could take nearly that many people down. So there are some, some unresolved questions in this text. Was there a mistake in the copying, or are we not understanding that word for thousand properly? There may be answers that, that we haven't also yet considered. And none of that is to call the authority of a text like this into account, but it's to recognize that in the process of copying and transmitting, and then in the process of, of understanding the ancient Hebrew, there may be things we, we don't yet understand. In any case, what's very clear in this text is that Israel was still hopelessly outnumbered, and yet somehow God still won the victory by defeating their army and then destroying that wall and killing those who were on it or, or under it. And you notice in this, there's very clear allusions to, to the city of Jericho. Actually, that, that's there in this whole chapter. You notice the wall came down on the seventh day, just like it did with Jericho. And so God showed Israel that he's able to work those same victories among them in their own day, despite even their unbelief, just as he had done so long ago with, with their ancestors. God is faithful even to a wayward people that had fallen for centuries, or, or at least for decades, into Baal worship. So those are the two main halves of the chapter, the two main battles. God shows first that the victory is his, and second he shows that the glory, the honor, is also his. And, and we're left with Ben-Hadad totally defeated and brought down to his knees. That's the end of this man's sick, perverse reign with those 32 kings behind him. Now we find him humbled, terrified for his life, and, and hiding inside an inner chamber of the city. I couldn't help but be reminded of those pictures of Saddam Hussein hiding in that, in that little hole where they ultimately found him. That's essentially where you find Ben-Hadad now in this chapter. And so his servants say to him in verse 31, Behold now, we've heard that the kings of Israel are merciful kings. So let us put sackcloth on our waist and ropes on our heads as a symbol of, of submission and slavery. And let us go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will spare our life. So that's what they did. Ben-Hadad stayed in hiding just to see how Ahab was going to react. And here's where we come then to the twist at the end of this story. When Ben-Hadad heard that Ahab, or when Ahab heard that Ben-Hadad was begging for his life, he says, is he still alive? He is my brother. Now surely we're meant to pause in shock after reading those words from, from Ahab. Your brother? How can the king of Israel say this about a man who just moments ago had ordered him to deliver up all his wives and children? What about the, the soldiers who had died fighting this man back? Was he speaking for them when he called Ben-Hadad his brother? What about the children that he wanted to take into slavery? Was he speaking for them? Well, Ben-Hadad's men were waiting for Ahab's response, and when they heard this, they, they jumped on it like a group of seagulls. They said, yes, yes, exactly. He's, he's your brother. Exactly. And Ahab just fell for the whole thing, hook, line, and sinker. He said, yes, go and bring him. And he invited Ben-Hadad up into his chariot. And here's the shocking thing then. After all that God had done, Ahab ultimately signed a truce with God's enemy. 
Just like Achan, after the fall of the city of Jericho, Ahab failed to realize that it was God who accomplished the victory. And so the honor belonged to God, and so did the spoils of victory, and so did the terms of surrender. Ahab had no business signing a treaty with God's enemy. And that's the point that the chapter then finishes on. You get this this story of the two prophets, which, which ultimately brings the one prophet to King Ahab. And it's a tragic and unexpected ending to what at this point seemed like a, a victorious chapter. That great victory that God accomplished ultimately ends with a compromising with sin and a compromise that ruins the entire chapter. And so we're given this story of the two chapters. You might be wondering about this first man who, who refused to strike the prophet. And you might think, well, that's, uh, it's an understandable thing for him to do. But he was ultimately killed for it by, by a lion. Now, the text doesn't say, but we can at least assume that he was aware that this was a prophet of God, that he was disobeying. And then you can see the point, which is a point that's ultimately for Ahab. When God commands you to do something... You do it, no matter what your feelings might be about it. And if disobedient prophets can't get away with disobeying God, then certainly disobedient kings cannot either. And that's the message that this prophet ultimately brings to Ahab. He pretends to be a soldier who's given charge over a prisoner and and who accidentally let that prisoner get away. And you'll notice he even mentioned this, this condition that he could have uh, been redeemed for the price of a talent of silver, which wasn't a huge price. It was a big price for a soldier, but it, it wasn't an enormous price. And so he goes to the king, presumably to, to beg for help, to beg for that talent of silver to redeem his life. And Ahab, by his answer, ends up sealing his own fate. He told the man, well, so shall your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. You notice he could have given that soldier a way out by providing that that talent of silver. It's not a big price for a king. But he didn't figure that that soldier deserved a way out. And so then God wouldn't give him a way out either. God demands Ahab's life as the price for letting Ben-Hadad get away. And, And then by his answer, Ahab himself admits that it was a fair thing for God to demand. He had no business letting God's enemy escape. It wasn't the right thing to do, and it wasn't even his prerogative to make that kind of decision. It was God's victory, and Ahab should have been able to see that. And so then the message that the author leaves, ringing in our ears, also for us today, is woe to him who makes peace with God's enemies. That's a hard message, especially for a soft culture like ours, where where our feelings can make us so vulnerable. We easily let our feelings rule us, and our, our feelings sometimes then ultimately carry more authority in our lives than God's Word. We might wonder, how does a story like this, with, it, with its ultimate end of judgment, how does this fit into a a book about God's mercy that teaches us to be peacemakers and to love our enemies? What kind of message is this that this chapter is leaving for us today? Well, those aren't easy questions to answer. But let me start with this. First, there's a message here for God's enemies. If you are an enemy of God, the only options before you are complete, unconditional surrender or defeat and an eternity in hell at the justice of God. In that case, don't weep for Ben-Hadad. Start weeping for yourselves and fall before God's grace while there's still time. He is the one who calls the shots. His are the only terms that matter. We can complain all day about how God maybe should have been more merciful to Ben-Hadad, but the fact is, he wasn't, and his is the only standard of justice that counts. So if you are an enemy of God's by virtue of, uh, of a life of sin and an unwillingness to repent, then those are your options, to repent 
while there's still an opportunity and surrender while you still can or else face defeat at the hands of God. Now we know God is a God of mercy, but He's also a God who does not compromise with evil. Nor is the gospel of Christ a compromise with evil. If you have been forgiven your sins through Christ, then you know it came at a very, very great cost. There was no compromise with evil there. God does not compromise with sin. And so here's the second point of application for, for the rest of us who, who are God's children, who belong to God's church. Since it was Christ who conquered sin on the cross, apart from any doing of yours or mine, just just in the same way as as his victory over Ben-Hadad, then we have no right at all to do as Ahab did and take command of God's grace and, and of our own accord make peace with those who are still God's enemies. He extends His grace, of course, to everyone through the gospel, but it is a gospel that demands a change of life and repentance. We as Christians and we as a church have no right at all to declare to anyone that they are not enemies of God's if, in fact, they are judged by God's word. No idolater, idolater, slander, you know the the text, will inherit the kingdom of God. We have no right to declare to any of them that they have inherited the kingdom of God. We can't make peace with God's enemies. There's only one way to peace with God. And if we're honest, it can be very tempting for us to do that. It feels good to to be able to say, hey, I'm not going to judge you, when in fact God clearly does. It's easy to be an affirming church, and it feels good to be an affirming church, but it's not our prerogative to be so. The gospel victory isn't our victory, and so neither are the terms of surrender We ourselves were saved by nothing but God's grace and through God's power. And so we have no right to start going around declaring peace with those with whom God has not made peace. The only way to peace with God is through repentance and faith in Christ. Through turning from sin as God defines sin and finding our hope in the Savior that God has sent us. If someone, does, if someone does turn to God and forsakes their sin and finds their hope in Christ, then we can, with, with all joy, with all mercy, with all love, declare to them that God really has forgiven them their sins. And we can welcome them into the church and welcome them into the favor of God. But until someone has turned from sin as God defines sin and turned to Christ, then we can love them. We can serve them. We can minister to them. We can invite them into our homes. We can call them to Christ. But we cannot ever declare to them that they are at peace with God when in fact they are not. That God accepts them the way they are when in fact He doesn't. Because to do that would be just like Ahab, to assume God's place and to assume that the gospel victory is ours to dispense to whomever we wish. And that ultimately is blasphemy just as it was for Ahab. If we go down that road, God will, just like Ahab, certainly demand our life as price for such treason. Because that's what it ultimately is. It's treason. You see so many churches that say, we are an affirming church. They, they, They hold a rainbow flag and say, we welcome homosexuals as full members in good standing, and they don't have to come with any change in life. That is treason against the gospel of God. Now obviously this makes us uncomfortable as a church. And as sinners ourselves, we we tremble at the thought of a God who ultimately destroys his his enemies who don't surrender to him. But brothers and sisters, that, that isn't just the God of the Old Testament. The Lord Jesus himself speaks of hell more than anyone else in the Bible. And he appears in Revelation coming, carrying a two-edged sword to judge the living and the dead and to fill the earth with the blood of his enemies. But this is the only God 
that we know. And this is the only gospel that we have. No idolater, adulterer, thief, greedy person, drunkard, slanderer, or the like will inherit the kingdom of God. The only way to God is through repentance and faith in Christ. And the, the promise, that promise is real. And we have permission and even orders from God to extend that gospel offer to all people, no matter what their life might be like. But that's the only gospel that we're permitted to share with the world. God's terms of surrender need to define our message to the world. God's terms need to define our relationship as a church with other churches as well. God's terms of surrender def- determine who we invite and, and, and admit to the Lord's table and how we deal with those who are living in sin. It isn't our table to admit anyone that we like to come, nor is it our table to refuse anyone whom Christ has welcomed. Only the gospel, as it's found in God's word, can define that for us. So God's standard must rule us as a church. And God's standard must also rule us as a society. As Christians, we, we insist on, on a death penalty for murder because that's God's law. That's God's standard, whether we like it or not, whether our, our feelings go along with it or not. And the reality is our, our discomfort with God's hard, heavy standard of justice it often goes both ways. Some of the commands that we have from God are hard because they demand mercy when we would rather seek vengeance and justice. And others demand justice when we would rather extend mercy. And oftentimes that's because we are not the ones who are, who are the victims. So sometimes our emotions line up with God's commands. Other times our emotions go the opposite direction entirely. And oftentimes we end up letting those emotions determine how we will relate to others in the world. And we end up finding ourselves doing the exact opposite of what God tells us in His Word. Judging those and seeking vengeance against those whom God has commanded us to forgive. Or, conversely, forgiving those and offering mercy to those who have not yet repented and whom God still holds under judgment. If we only follow our emotions, we end up getting his commands very backwards. So before we accuse God then in this text of being overly vengeful against someone like Ben-Hadad, we should consider how often we ourselves are vengeful or spiteful when God actually commands us otherwise. And before we accuse God of being too lenient towards our enemies, we should stop and consider how we often have been unrighteously lenient against His. His is the victory. His is the glory. And His are the terms of surrender. There's only one way to God, and that's through the Savior that He sent to turn from sin, to turn to Christ while there's still opportunity to do so. That's the only gospel, the only good news that we have, both for ourselves and for the world. So then, May God, through His Spirit, enable us to receive that message and surrender ourselves and also bring that message to the world in which God has placed us. Amen. Let's respond by singing.